Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. The war is finally over. Absalom is dead. And as we looked at in chapter 19, uh, the war is finished, but there's still a lot of mending in this uh, period of time after this civil war or the treason that uh, caused by Absalom within the nation of Israel. We saw kind of the tail end of this when we looked at 2 Samuel 19, the last few verses there, and I think you see the sense of that civil war still raging between uh, the tribes. You have Judah on one hand uh, coming to meet David at um, the Jordan, and on the other hand you have the men of Israel. And there's this tension that's always there. It's it's, it, go, it goes long before this time uh, here. There's this tension that happens uh, throughout uh, the whole nation. Even in the period of Judges, you see this divide of these tribes. Who is going to fight for who and who is going to abandon and not turn up? Um, even before we get into First and Second Samuel. But then you have First uh, and Second Samuel and you have uh, Saul, a Benjaminite, uh, sitting on the throne. Then you have uh, Judah. Uh, David uh, from Judah, and, and here in, in the last chapters of uh, verses in chapter 19, we see the men of Israel versus the men of Judah. And uh, we see all the men came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king to his household over the Jordan and all his men with him? So the men of Israel come to the men of Judah and say, Why are you the ones bringing him over? Why do you get to have this honor? And all the men of Judah answered, and their response to the men of Israel is, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So you see this tension between here the ten tribes of Israel, the Judah, and obviously Benjamin is, is somewhat included. Uh, where they get that number ten from is that you have the ten northern tribes, and Benjamin is closely related, I think, to uh, Judah. And you see that when the kingdom divides um, after Solomon passes. But what you see here is the war is over. Absalom is gone. But you still see this, this terrible effect of what Absalom have done to the nation of Israel. There's this divide, this damage that is still present. And even tonight's passage in chapter 10, we still the ongoing effects of what this is happening in uh, this time following the death of Absalom. And tonight's chapter really begins with a trumpet blowing and ends with a trumpet blowing as well. But before we see that uh, closing, opening and closing, I want to point out that we've seen this before in 2 Samuel. It, uh, and, and particularly this section of uh, 2 Samuel, it, it's, the enemies are not outside. The enemies are from within. And, and most likely, if you were to put the emphasis where the Bible puts the emphasis, most of 2 Samuel is actually not about the enemies from outside. 
It's actually from the enemies from within. You might say chapters maybe 8 and 10 might be focused on external things. Chapter 21 is focused on external enemies. But here, just as chapter 8 finishes with the listing of David's officials, so too does this chapter end with the listing of David's officials. And we'll see that uh, closer as we see the divides going through this. But most of the battles within 2 Samuel have been internal. The first two chapters, uh, four chapters even, are about the, the battle between the house of Saul and the house of uh, David, Ishbosheth and Abner against David's house. And the sword shall it devour forever, Abner asks um, uh, the brothers of uh, Zeria. In 2 Samuel uh, chapter 28, after this battle happens, Joab blows the trumpet. And the men stopped and pursued Israel no more. Again, this divide, who is the house of David fighting against the house of Israel? And Joab blows the trumpet. Joab takes, uh, took things into his own care, hands, took care of Abner. Uh, the trumpet is blown again in chapter 15. It's Absalom this time that blows the trumpet to start a war, to be able to declare that Absalom is king in Hebron, this treason, this beginning of this time, of uh, this conspiracy um, of Absalom trying to take uh, David's crown from his hand. But Absalom starts the fight, but Absalom does not get to blow the horn of victory at the end. Again, it is Joab who blows the trumpet at the end of chapter, in chapter 18, Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel and Joab restrained them. Again, you see the house of David versing the house of Israel ending in the trumpet being blown and the war finally being over. And tonight is the same as well. You have Sheba tonight. He blows the trumpet in verse 1 to start the war, but he does not get to hear that sound of the trumpet again. It's Joab once more who blows the trumpet of victory at the end. So let's first find out what we can about uh, who this Sheba is. And we see this in verse 1. Now there happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So we get introduced right in verse 1 with a person and the conflict. We see the author, uh, either Gad at Nathan at this point, I think towards the latter years of David's reign, Nathan is it there. You see Samuel uh, dying when Saul is, Gad kind of maybe filling in that spot, but Nathan taking on at the end. So towards the end, I think it's possibly Nathan who's doing this writing. And he begins chapter 20 with this introduction. And his introduction begins first with this worthless man. Now someone says to you, here's this person. And they turn to you and say, he is a worthless man. It's not a very good introduction. Now it's not a good introduction even in our vocabulary. But in terms of biblical categories, it's not a good category of people to be named alongside with. You want to be named along the people that are mentioned in the Hall of Faith, maybe. Not these people that are called worthless fellows or worthless men. It's Eli's sons who are called worthless men. And they're worthless men. Why are they worthless men? Because they did not know the Lord. They're priests who are unholy. They're priests who do not know the Lord. They're priests of the Lord who do not know the Lord. 
Or earlier in Judges chapter 19, this big chapter, this big moment in the story of Israel's history, um, where the people of uh, God are acting more like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how far-fetched they are. And the men of the city, they are called worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to this old man, the master of the house, bring out the men who came into your house that we may know him. This horrific thing that's happening here in the nation of Israel. And what are these men called? They're called worthless fellows. Or just even earlier, uh, later in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 25, it's Nabal, the fool, and he is introduced as a worthless fellow for his name, uh, so he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Why are they worthless? I think that uh, the sons of Eli is a good example. Deuteronomy 13 helps us with this. As certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and drawn away the inhabitants of the city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known. So they do not know the Lord, and what they do is they draw people away. That it's not merely that they just take up a lot of space, that they don't really help around the house. It's nothing like that. It's always the spiritual nature that, that they're worthless in the sense that they're worshiping other things instead of God. Nabal was worshiping his possessions. And uh, so here, Nathan or Gad, Nathan I, I believe, but introduces this man. Before we even get to hear his name, we know that he's a worthless man. And we know that he is worthless, and therefore that helps us as we shape and understand this story. The, the one thing that we do know for certain is that he is a worthless man. Now, we don't get a lot more about who he is. We don't find out more. We find out he's uh, a Sheba, uh, is his name. He's the son of Bikri. Now, uh, this can mean that his father's name was Bikri, uh, I tend to believe that uh, if you look later in the passage in verse 14, and Sheba passed through the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Makkah, and all the Bikrites uh, assembled and followed him there. So it's probably more a clan, and they're known for their forefather rather than his father. So when people say that they're sons of Abraham, it's not saying that they're merely just Abraham is their physical father. It's the down in the line, that's where he is. So Bikri most likely is the clan that he comes from, descends from, rather than his father's name. But we also find out that Bikri, uh, the clan, or that his father is from the tribe of Benjamin. So here you have this further divide happening between Judah and Benjamin, and, and between uh, Benjamin and the house of David, the house of Saul versus the house of David, as, as we've looked at many times. But out of all the tribes, out of the nation of Israel, you might say that Benjamin is the one that causes the greatest grief. Benjamin is a small tribe, but it, that's a small tribe that causes a lot of trouble. And this is exactly what Jacob said as he, he gave his blessings upon his children. He said that Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. And I think that is true of the nation of uh, the tribe of, of Benjamin within the nation's history. Benjamin is one that does cause a lot of problems. But here we find about this certain man, this Sheba, man of Sheba, this worthless man. And what does he do? 
he makes a loud noise as David is coming back. And this divide that is already there, he's playing in this. And in verse 1, we find out what he says. He blows a trumpet, and we have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. Now, interestingly, at the end of the story, exactly the same thing happened. They blow the trumpet, uh, everyone goes back to their tents. But his plan doesn't come to an end. We see this divide between the men of Judah, the men of Israel, uh, in the the previous chapter, and now into 20, we see this divide still going on. But just remember what Joab did when Joab rebuked David in chapter 19, verse 7. He warned that something like this could happen. If David wasn't going to act as a king, then he said something like this could happen. And he he warns him, he says, Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you uh, from your youth until now. And even David picks this up later in this chapter when he says that we need to deal with Sheba or else it's going to be worse than Absalom, this divide that has happened. And and David, as a king, is facing this problem within his kingdom of this division that is happening. What is going to happen with this division that is starting uh, to grow, this spark, this fire, you might say? This will even be a problem when Solomon passes away. So often I I point out that we normally call this era that we're in the United Kingdom, of where all the nation of Israel is one nation under a king, But what you actually find out is there's warning signs all throughout this period of time that there's there's tension within the nation of Israel. So it's not a surprise after Solomon passes away and you have Rehoboam and Jeroboam and both of them are at conflict. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, you see the exact same argument played out when they look at the king kingdom and the king who is the king. And when all Israel saw the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. So you see this tension that is going to build and eventually divide the kingdom is already in seed form here. And how is David going to handle this? And David needs to come and he acts. Joab says, you need to act. He, he says before, arise, go speak kindly to your servants. Do something or else something evil is going to happen. So what will David do? It's quite simple. He comes home. The first thing that we see is he comes home after crossing the Jordan. He comes home and he sets his house in order. We see this in verses 2 and 3. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba the son of uh, Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them. But he did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as in as if in widowhood. So you see here, David comes home. He, the, the men of Israel all go back to their tents. There's no celebration in Jerusalem. And the men of Judah follow David to Jerusalem. And David comes home and he, he starts to... You can't, he doesn't 
reverse what Absalom does. He cannot reverse that. You might say he tries to, to redeem it or, or mend it to some extent. He comes home and those ten concubines that he looked uh, left to take care of the house that Absalom had gone into uh, in the sight of everyone. He comes and he takes care of them. He, he, he puts them and provides for them for the day of his life. But here, even now you see in chapter 20, the effects of what is actually happening right where in this whole section from chapter 11 to chapter 20 is all one cohesive story that all of it is played together. In chapter 12, when Nathan comes and warns David of what is happening, he tells what God is going to do. I will raise evil up against out of your own house, which is Absalom coming up. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Here's the hand of the rod of the discipline upon David's life as he's underneath this discipline from God in this section. Absalom does um, evil in the sight of the Lord and he, he takes these concubines. And David now is left with the ramifications of Absalom's actions. But he takes care of them putting, and providing for them. They're living as widows. Now Absalom, when he was there, he not only uh, did that thing with the concubines, but he also made another change Change in chapter 17. He, he takes Amasa and sets him over the army instead of Joab. So here he is. Absalom now has a commu- new uh, commander over his army instead of Joab. And what David does in chapter 19 is he explains to Amasa that you are you not bone of my flesh. God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. So David actually says Joab is no longer my commander. You are my commander. Now we kind of mentioned this when we're looking at this passage. It's hard to be able to understand that the, the thoughts that are going through David's head. We're not told specifically, besides that you are a family member, that you're bone of my bones and and my flesh, so so I kind of need to treat you well, you might say. That's kind of his reasoning there, but we do not more than this. So David keeps Amasa, and what we find out here in this chapter is David then gives Amasa directions. He's treating Amasa as his um, commander of his army. And in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 20, the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed to him. So David understands what's happening. He's come home, he's set his house in order, and he understands that he needs to deal with Sheba. There's, there's no just waiting around. He gives Amasa three days to be able to get together an army to be able to pursue uh, uh, um, uh, Sheba. So he's acting, he's ruling like a king should, and he does so quickly. Maybe it's Joab's rebuke that is ringing in his ears. Because what we actually see is that Joab's rebuke that something worse is going to happen if you do not speak kindly to your servants. Stand up, arise, act like a king. And we see this in chapter, in continuing in verses 6 and um, 
at 6 to 8. When he doesn't, Amasa doesn't get his army together within three days. He kind of falls off the map. David turns to Abishai. Now again, what's happening to Joab during this point, we don't necessarily know. Is it still that the words ring true in his ears and therefore he, he doesn't feel like he can talk to him the same? Is he, uh, is he upset about how um, Absalom, his son, died and therefore uh, Joab has been demoted? Uh, we're not clearly told what happens, but he, he doesn't turn to Amasa. He doesn't turn to Joab. He turns to Amasa, then he turns to Abishai. And in verse 6, he turns to Abishai and says, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your servants and pursue him, lest he get himself into fortified cities and escape from us. And there went after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri, when they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon. Amasa came to meet them. So, Abishai is given this challenge, and he, he jumps straight into it. He does exactly what it's told, in contrast to what Amasa does. We don't know why, again, David appoints Abishai. But you still notice that what happens in verse uh, in verse, um, he, he says in verse 7, Go after him, Joab's men. They're still Joab's men. So is this a temporary suspension? Uh, we're not told specifically. Um, maybe Abishai just needs to get something off his chest, and he sees that passion that we've seen in Abishai in the previous uh, ver- chapters where uh, David gives him this challenge. But what we find is this pursuit of um, uh, Bikri, uh, Sheba, ends with this interesting story of this story between Joab and Amasa. Now, we often, when we're reading the Bible, we need to pay attention to when the story seems different or when the story changes direction. They're all heading after to chase down Amasa, uh, to chase down uh, Sheba. But in this time, there's this conflict between Joab and Amasa. And we see this in verses 8 to 13, towards the end of 8. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened to his thigh. And when he went forward, it fell out. So the Bible is very is not very descriptive a lot of times about what people are wearing, what's happening. Uh, they don't really mention a lot of these types of details. So when they start to introduce these types of details, you need to start picking up the, why are they telling us this bits of information? And Joab comes up to Amasa and he says, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, so Joab struck him in the stomach, and he spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by, seeing him, stopped. 
And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now we have here a very vivid and uh, painted uh, image that we're given to by the author. You see Joab here is, is he coming up. He's wearing a soldier's uh, uniform and he has this hidden sword underneath his cloak, his cloak. And he comes forward to greet Amasa with his right hand. And this is very uh, important because the right hand is normally used for battle. When uh, the story in Ehud in, in Judges chapter 3, is ju- Ehud is a left-handed man. So his, his sword is, is strapped to the other side of his leg, so they don't search that side of the leg. So too, now Joab comes up to greet Amasa, and he puts out his right hand to be able to greet him. And Joab's sword is now in his left hand, and Joab greets him with a kiss, but instead he greets Amasa with his sword right through the stomach. Now here's a picture of what that would look like. I didn't do a picture of what that would look like. But uh, it's always an interesting question and always a, a, a dilemma that we come to when we're reading stories like this. Right or wrong? Is Joab right or wrong in this action? Joab takes things into his own hand. Now we often get the idea that Joab does this because of his loyalty towards David. But we're not told, we're not given a color-coded message or key notes Footnotes, see this and right or wrong This, this uh, in the back of the book. We're only given the information that we're given. David doesn't punish him, and David doesn't really punish um, Joab in all of his life. And that's an interesting thing. To what extent does David know of all these things? And then what does he do about those things? With Absalom... With Abner and now Amasa, Joab has really taken things into his own hands, you might say to protect David, but we're not sure. But both Abishai, Joab, and even their brother Ashahil seem to be very quick to be able to get their sword out and ask questions later. Now, to what extent we know about that, we're not sure. You might say that these are the brothers of thunder, uh, of the Old Testament, shall we call down thunder, fire from heaven? Um, shall we call our swords out that we might be able to go fight? Uh, Joe, uh, David rebuked Abishai just in the previous chapter when he asked about uh, the, the person who curses him, uh, Shimei. And he said, what shall we do with the sons of Zeruiah? You this day be an adversary to me. Shall anyone be put to death in Israel for this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? So his rebuke to Abishai, but he says the sons, plural. So maybe Joab is there with his hand on his uh, sword, willing to be able to go and fight uh, Shimei. Um, but you might say maybe it's a good political move of Joab, but it then doesn't mean it's a morally good move. I think David has uh, the final words when he's handing over the kingdom to Solomon and he brings up Joab to, um, to his son Solomon. And he says in 1 Kings chapter uh, 2, Moreover, you also know that Joab the son of Zeruiah did to me and how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner 
and Amasa the son of Jethro, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom. Do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. So David doesn't take things into his own hands, but giving wisdom, he passes this information. David knows what he did to Abner. David knows what he's done to Amasa. And, and the contrast here is he killed. Avenging in a time of peace with blood that has been shed in war. He doesn't know the difference between when it is time to fight and when it is time to heal. And later in chapter 2, Solomon actually finally passes judgment on Joab. The king replied to him, Do as he has said, strike him down and bury him, and thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt of the blood that Joab shed without cause. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head, because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed the sword of two men more righteous and better than himself. Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah. So looking back on this, we can look back and see what David and Solomon says about, Abner, uh, about Joab's actions. You see, David says that he doesn't know the difference between time of war and a time of peace. Uh, Solomon, in his wisdom, as his father had said, these bloody deeds on his own head, Without the knowledge of David, David does not know about what's happening. He killed with a sword two men more righteous than he. He shed blood without cause. So we're able to look back on this and be able to see how this is understood. Now why David doesn't do anything about this at this point, I'm not sure. Maybe this is his philosophy of how to be able to handle things. We're not sure, but here jealous. Joab is probably jealous of Amasa, wondering about what he's happening. But here Amasa's body is lying on the highway and he is a distraction. Just notice what this man says as he um, says as the people are walking through. Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Again, Joab becomes the center of this attention, even of this man. David is kind of tacked on to here, but Joab is still there. He's, whoever, you follow Joab. Not follow King David who, and Joab who is underneath him. So this man moves this distraction away uh, from what is happening. This really should have been about Sheba and getting back to Sheba, but here Joab is coming in doing this. But this detour is over, and now the men of Joab pursue Sheba. Sheba passes in verse 14 through the tribes of Israel and Abel of Beth Maka and the Bichites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maka. They cast up a mound against the city and they stood against the rampart and they were battering the wall to throw it down. So here they're going, uh, going all out to be able to to be able to try and find and capture Sheba. But as they're battering the wall, they hear this voice cry out to them on the other side of the wall, and this is, here's a woman's voice. This woman's voice who is described as a wise woman in verse 16. 
This wise woman, here you have this wise woman calling out. Now, this is not the only pattern you see with worthless men and a wise woman. This pattern has come up before. You have Nabal, a worthless fellow, the fool, and you have the wise words of Abigail. You have Eli's sons, the foolish, worthless men, but then you have Hannah, who is faithful. And here you have the worthless man Sheba, and this wise woman who doesn't have a name, who we do not know her name, and she cries out from the city, and she speaks to Joab, and this is what she has in this conversation. The wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here, that I may speak to you. And he came near to her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. And she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? This city has a history. This city has a name for itself. You might say, uh, on as you're going into uh, uh, this city in uh, Abel of Beth Mecca, right on there, the population is written there, where you come to solve your matters or where you come to find wisdom. It's known for being just, wise, faithful. This is how the woman describes this city. But she says, this is a heritage of the Lord. And you come here to be able to wipe it all out. Joab hears, he was listening that day, and he hears and he responds to this woman in verse 20. But this is just, uh, before we get to Joab's response, this is uh, where they are. It's quite a distance. You see Mahanaim there on the right. David comes down uh, across the Jordan uh, towards Jerusalem. They come up and they ride all the way, and that's how far uh, Sheba has gone. He's gone up there to be able to plan and plot, to be able to find a way to be able to maybe come back and attack. But here's the journey that they've gone on. But here's Joab's response in verse 20. Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it, that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him, uh, give up him alone, and I would withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in all her wisdom, in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. And he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. This wise woman really has this simple principle of what uh, the wise words of Ahithophel was to Absalom. Why, why go to war and fight this battle with many people lost? And Ahithophel said, You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. 
And so to Joab takes this principle, let's go wipe them out. Let's knock down the city into the wall. Let's annihilate this city to be able to get this one man. But this wise woman calls out and says, why do you fight and wipe out all of our heritage of the Lord just for this one man? Let us deal with this one man. So you see this, this order Somewhat has now come, this, this final conclusion to this section from Second Samuel chapter 11 now to Second Samuel chapter 10. That this warning, this discipline of the Lord, this prophecy of Nathan of what was going to happen, that evil was going to raise up out of the house, what happened secretly with David, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba and Uriah, God was going to reveal before all of Israel and before the Son. And here you see it, it, the effects of this has, have taken drastic thing, that evil has arisen from there. But what you now see now is the close of this section from verse 23 to 26. There's a marker here that we need to pay attention that we've seen before. In chapter 8, we'll see that contrast later, but here's uh, twenty, chapter 20, verse 23 and 26. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. Uh, Benaiah, the son of uh, Jehoiada, was in the command of the Cherites and the, Pel- the Palathites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilad, was recorder, and Shiva, the secretary, and Zadok and Abathar were priests. And Ira the Jarite was also David's priest. Now, we've read chapter 20. A chapter like this is always difficult to read and then think about how we apply it today. What can we learn from this? Do we learn you need to cover your bodies uh, so people aren't distracted from their main uh, cause? Uh, Secrets of where to hide your sword to be able to defeat your enemies? But I think sometimes it's helpful to be able to take a step back. This time we have the true anointed king, and someone steps up and says that they have no right or inheritance to that king, no portion in David. They are somewhat selfish in in their ambition. They think, uh, I think they forget God, neglect God. And what they do is they, I think, elevate this servant higher than that servant should be elevated. Because the king is merely a servant of of God, that every good and perfect gift comes from God who is above. There is a contrast, and that's not between Joab and Amasa. I think that the main contrast that you see here in this passage is between this nameless woman of faith Do you see that as she comes and describes herself in chapter 19, one of the peaceful and faithful in Israel, you seek to destroy a city that is mother in Israel. Why do you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Both Sheba and this nameless woman are concerned about the inheritance and the heritage of the Lord. But what you have is one who is unfaithful, and one who is faithful. But I think that difference there is there. You see Joab and Amasa, and I think that plays out further in First Kings. But I think another difference needs to be noted here. 
It's not a contrast between characters, it's a contrast between kingdoms. I want you to listen very carefully to these two bookends, one found in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15 to 18, and then I'll read what we just read before in 2 Samuel chapter 20. So David reigned over all of Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all of his people. Joab, the son of Zerur, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Elhilad, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of uh, Ehitab, and Amalek, the son of Abathar, were priests, and Zariah was secretary. Benaiah, the son of Jedoiah, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. Now listen again to chapter 20. Joab was in command of the army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was the command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and Doram was the charge of the forced labor. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilad, was recorder, and Shiva was secretary. Zadok and Abathar were priests, and Ira the Jarite was also David's priest. Now, there's many different, you can break up, there's Shiva the secretary as, as a different name. Uh, you can break that up, maybe it's the same name, just different, uh, different spellings, different pronunciations, or whatever, a nickname. But there's two major differences here between these two passages. That there's one major thing that is missing. Now one major thing is in that first verse in chapter 8. That David reigned over all of Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all of his people. That's something that is missing in this second time around. Do you see the end of David's kingdom a servant under God's own heart, as Del Ruff Davis uh, puts that section, and then you come into chapter 11 to chapter 20, and you see a servant of God under God's rod. And you see this has affected his kingdom to some extent. That David's kingdom, although he still reigns, he is a different type of king, that you can't necessarily say that he is administering justice. I mean, what has happened in all of this? There's, there's fighting and battling within his own house. There's rape, incest, um, murder, plots, treason. And, and what is lacking in all of this is David's uh, dealing and administering justice, equity to all of his people. And what then you have is this divide that happens within the nation. The first, so the first thing is one of subtraction, something that is not there. But the second thing is something that is added to this. And that is that you don't find it in the first one, you find it in the second one, that Adoram was in charge of forced labor. So his kingdom lacks justice, equity to all of his people, but one other thing that he's added is here that now you have a a department of forced labor. Now, I think you could unpack a lot of the differences here. What does it mean for David's son to be priest? What does it then mean for uh, Ira was also David's priest? But overall, I think you you notice those two differences. One thing that's lacking and one thing that's added. That David's kingdom now has a lot of damages that have been affected during this period of time. From chapter 8 to chapter 20, the effects of David's sin have now played in his kingdom and the kingdom is now different. God is still working and protecting his people and his king. But it also leaves us wondering and longing for that king to come. Because David's kingdom declines. It gets worse over time. 
You don't want him to be sitting on the throne forever. That this, this action that he does, this sin, changes his kingdom. But the author of Hebrews puts it quite well in chapter 12. I'll start uh, from verse 28, just reading chapter 28. But I think this whole section, I think, is a good example of, 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 of God and, and what type of kingdom we have with the new Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. He says in verse 28, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For God, our God is a consuming fire. The David's kingdom shakes and it has a, a terrible foundation if it's built upon David. But Christ, the greater David, the mediator of the new covenant, sprinkled with blood, his kingdom cannot be shaken. His kingdom cannot be moved and it doesn't get worse. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.